You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Thank you for that, Ross. Thanks, uh, Hope Niagara, letting me be here today with you. I'm uh, thrilled, and on behalf of Hope Oakville, extend our love and uh, appreciation for you all. Um, it's been a neat journey, you know, to be able to see the church planted many years ago, and then here we are. And of course, driving in today, um, I like your new digs. This is pretty good. Hey, this is pretty good. And driving the parking lot. And again, so I've been in ministry long enough now that um, I have perspective. And uh, perspective's a good thing, and it's a blessing, and it really, when it's um, censored in the right way, it brings gratitude. So I drive in today, see the church building, how God's provision for you. I'm, I am very grateful. Uh, I come in here and I see this and see you all and two services. And what God is doing, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. I love our partnership. Um, I love that we're open-handed with one another. I love that we start to uh, encourage each other. I, I love that it's not about trying to establish one over the other. We just want to see God's kingdom go forward. I love that. I love that we're cheering you as much as you're cheering, cheering us. We need that in our day. Um, this is not a time for any time to be fighting or to be competing. This is a time we desperately need God's kingdom to advance in every way possible. And on that note, um, I believe and I'm filled with faith as I say this. What you need to know here at Hope Niagara, you guys are a big deal in the sense of the kingdom of God in this area. Um, I, um, I'm very kind of passionate about understanding how the church is working in our land and beyond. Talk to a lot of pastors, uh, see a lot of churches. The significance of this spiritual work in this area, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of the magnitude of it, but I want you to be. It doesn't mean you become proud of that. It just means you've been grateful and you're filled with the understanding. What God does here is going to impact and have repercussions in so many lives. And Lord willing, more churches planted and whatnot. And so again, this is significant. This is beautiful. This is a very big deal. This is not perfect, but God's hand is on it. And that, that I rejoice in, okay? So don't mess it up, all right? All right? So don't mess it up. Like, you have been entrusted with a stewardship. And so our job is to get as low as possible before the Lord that we can be faithful to him because he certainly is faithful to us, all right? So one of my biggest goals in ministry life is to persevere, to persevere. And we'll see that in our text today as well. Because to make it to the end and hear well done, that is success. That is success. Not just for me, but for you as well. So Lord, help us. Help us to love you and be faithful to you and keep things simple. It's not about us. And to keep honoring Jesus Christ as you are that we can get to the end and hope Niagara will be used in massive ways. Amen, church? That's the goal and that's the blessing. I'm going to pray for us now as we get into God's word. Father, I love being able to say what I just said. I believe it. I believe it with all my heart, Lord. I just, I'm so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful for this leadership. I'm so grateful for the people here, the new people coming, Lord, the lives that are being changed and transformed. I'm so thankful for your provision for them, your care for them, Lord. I, again, I understand ministry ups and downs, and that's just the reality, but the constant is Jesus Christ. And so we pray now you will use this time and even this text that is so in line with what we're talking about right now. May you massively encourage. Um, it'll be challenging, but I pray be so filled with love uh, at the same time, which is what you love to do by your spirit. So lead us now, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, if you agree, you can say amen, amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to be in James 1 today, the first couple of verses. 
And some of them may be familiar, but I pray that the Lord's going to give you a fresh appreciation for these verses as he loves to do. Um, again, James chapter 1. James is an excellent book. Uh, I, I love it so much because it's a wonderful, practical challenge for believers. Um, James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Um, this epistle essentially, what it brings to us today is James is like, hey, hey, hey. He's like, hey, is your faith real? If your faith is real, prove it with your life then. I mean, James is all over that, like verse after verse after verse. He's like, oh yeah, you're talking the big talk? Let's see you walk the walk, all right? Because he's not interested in people saying stuff out of knowledge. He's interested in knowledge leading to devotion, leading to fruitfulness, again, coming from their lives. James is so big on this too. James is like, knowledge is not enough. Because in James chapter two, he's like, even the demons believe and shudder. If it's just about knowledge, then what, what good would that be? Knowledge has to lead to fruitfulness again from their lives. The book of James is so convicting. Do you know there's 108 verses in the book of James? 60, 60, 60 of them are obligations. 50 plus are imperatives of commands to do something. And then you add a few more, 60 out of 108 verses, we are being challenged to change and prove our faith again in Jesus Christ. I love James 2. He's my kind of guy because he's not afraid to get up in the face, you know, not afraid to get up in your grill, right? He's not, he's, he's not trying to be liked by everyone. He's just trying to be faithful to what God has said. And he tells them what they need to hear in grace and truth. And he doesn't hold back as he does so, as we're going to see today as well. Again, he is speaking to true believers and he's calling them to action. Just some initial context for us as we enter into James chapter 1. The author of James, this might surprise you, the author of James is James. I know, profound. But, but, but not just any James, he is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he was martyred for his faith around AD 62, according to the historian Josephus. The date of writing, this is interesting, that James is likely the oldest book in the New Testament, written as early as AD 45, which would even put it before the first council of Jerusalem, which happened around A.D. 50. The audience that James is writing to in verse 1, it speaks of the Jewish Christians in the dispersion. So he is speaking to scattered Jews outside of Palestine, and he is deeply desiring to encourage them in their new Christian faith. I mean, these are some of the first people to receive the gospel, to become alive with Jesus Christ in his spirit. And then he's like, okay, if we're going to be real in Christ, again, let's live it out with our lives. So that takes us to James 1, uh, verse 1. Again, we have four verses we're going to go through today. Um, a couple of verses packed, again, with content. Let's, uh, let's read it. So James 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice right away, James is the half-brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus. Give me some props. He doesn't do that, eh? Servant of God and of Christ Jesus to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. And then verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, 
So that's our text today. Verse 1 covers what we've already kind of stated. We see the author in verse 1. We see the audience in verse 1. But we also see a greeting. So just like the book of Proverbs, James wastes no time getting to the heart of his message. He's like, hey, what's up? Good to see you. Greetings. And then jumps right in again to the main theme of what he's going after right away with the people. And he exhorts them. This is uh, verse 2 for us. This is our big idea. This is our propositional statement. This is our thesis today. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. So our overarching point for our time today as we gather in God's Word is that, number one, I think on the screen for you, we are to consider it joy within our trials. We are to consider it joy within our trials. So as we love to do to Hope Oakville and also here in Hope Niagara, we want to live in the text, okay? So we're coming upon the first uh, few verses in the book of James. Imagine you're a first century believer. Uh, imagine you'd be a super newbie to the Christian faith. I mean, Christ is alive in you, but you're just trying to understand how things are going. In this context, just naming Christ out loud would likely bring serious hardship, uh, stress, struggle, and likely persecution. So you're excited. Hey, the Apostle James, he's written us a letter. He's going to encourage us. We're excited to get it. And then he says, hello, in verse 1. And then the first thing he says, count it joy as trials meet you. And as soon as you knew the Christian faith, you're a super newbie, there you are, you'd be like, oh, I thought he might start off with something different, you know? Like, maybe he was like a little introductory joke, and then he'll get into what he meant to say. Maybe it's a typo. Like, as a, as, as a, as a new believer, wanting to be encouraged, you're probably not expecting consider it joy when you find trials. You may have thought he might have said, consider it joy when you avoid trials of various kinds and see the blessing of the Lord. But we'll see here that's not a typo. That's exactly what James has said. And he, again, it's the first thing he essentially says. And now we find out why. So look at verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. So he is writing to true believers in Christ. Count it all joy. Now this is very important, okay? Because the word count can be translated reckon or consider. And this is key. It's a verb, listen carefully here, it's a verb of thought, not a verb of emotion. I want you to think about that. He's like, consider, think, reckon, reckon it joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. So this is very, very important theology for everyone who desires to be mature in the Christian faith. Right Again, not a command to feel. Okay, Why is that key? Because feelings, as we've been taught and should understand, feelings are lousy leaders, but they are very good followers. You must understand this. So I am a feeler, like at my nature. I am emotional. So I am tempted to ride the emotional waves of when I feel good and when I don't feel good. That's a very dangerous plan for Robbie. I have to ground my feelings behind the truth of God's word so I can be led properly in this life. Otherwise, I'll be tossed with every wave that comes upon me, and so will you. This is why when James says here, he says, you must count, consider in your mind 
the joy that is to be found in the trials that we face. So what James is saying here, again, this is so exciting and very powerful. He's saying then that every trial we face, there's the opportunity to find joy within it. Every single one. And some of the trials represented here today could be brutal. And yet, because of the gospel, because of the glory guaranteed in Jesus Christ, because of the sovereign wisdom and ways of God, hear it again, every trial we face, there is the opportunity to count, consider, to reckon the joy to be found within it. And he's like, hey, church, you've got to discipline your thoughts to see it as such. By the way, this is, this is a huge part of maturity in Christ. Our minds direct our emotions. And what we know too, right? We know, we know as we grow in Christ. Joy, biblically speaking, is not altered by our circumstances. Your joy and my joy has nothing to do with what happens around you today. Our joy is fully rooted eternally in Jesus Christ cannot change. See, our world throws around words like joy. What they really mean is a happiness that is so temporal that it changes with the weather. Even less than that. Right? So after church today, you go out and you eat a very yummy burger. That makes me feel happy but it only lasts as long as indigestion to set in afterwards, right? And then the happiness is gone. That's not what we're talking about. Joy here is, again, rooted and grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his promises and love that is absolutely guaranteed to every single believer for all of eternity, and nothing and no one will ever separate you from that. That is where we see the joy. So anything leading to more of that joy is going to be seen as something as a blessing for us. And, and God and Christ and Paul and Peter and James says trials are used to increase our ability to see the joy of God working within our lives. So notice also here, notice in verse 2, notice the word when. You see it there? Look at the word when. When you meet trials. That, that's, that's key, so not if, when. What do we learn here? Trials are guaranteed. Hate to be the bearer of bad news. It's actually, in some ways, it's good news. Trials are guaranteed. So, so this is key too, eh? Because one of the great dangers of Western Christianity in the last generation, couple generations, certainly several decades, one of the great dangers of Western Christianity is this easy believism, is this, is this subtle or not subtle prosperity living. Or just even like we get tempted to believe that when I follow Christ, life is easy then. When I follow Christ, no trials. Christ died to make my life comfortable. Who says the Bible? I mean, it's amazing. Have you been duped into thinking somehow that Jesus Christ died to make your life here on this side of heaven as easy as possible? Have you, have you been duped into thinking that that somehow is true? Because it's not in Scripture. It's not. I often like to say this too. Align your expectations what the Bible actually teaches. And what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that the road is narrow 
and it's hard. The Bible teaches that people hate us because we love Jesus Christ. The Bible promises trials will come. The Bible teaches us that, again, we will be persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ. The Bible promises we're not always going to fit in. The Bible promises we won't be popular all the time. The Bible promises suffering, again, is at the center of following Christ because of what suffering produces. Western Christianity hardly ever talks about that. And so what we're not doing is we're not talking about what's in the Bible. So today, once again, James starts with, he starts with this. It's amazing to me, isn't it? Again, how important for the first century, how important for the 21st century. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So one of the key questions that comes down to us is trials will come, guaranteed. How will we view them? How will we view them? The next phrase, notice, when you, look at verse two, look at verse two, when you meet trials, that's interesting, eh? When you meet trials, another way to translate that is when you fall into trials. And by the way, when we talk about trials here, this is super important. We're not talking about when we sin and suffer consequences. That's not a biblical trial, okay? When we sin, people like to do this. We sin and we suffer the consequences. Oh, I'm going through such a great trial. No, no, you're going through the consequences of you being stupid, right? So let's not call that a trial. A biblical trial is an outward testing that comes upon us. It is outside of us as we follow Christ and in this life. It is something that comes again against us from the external side, again, that we have no control over whatsoever. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a trial. Do not label your sin a trial in this sense. That's not what's happening here. But notice here, James says, you fall into trials. And that's very, very true, right? Like, we're walking along in life. And all of a sudden, like we wake up one morning, we have no idea what's coming. We wake up, we fall into this massive trial hole. Like this room right now is packed with testimonies of significant trial, whether it's been the last month or year or 10 years or life. It's packed with testimonies of trial. For some of us, 2022, we got hit upside the head in a way we, 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 we had no idea it was coming. And listen, for some of us, it's gonna be 2023. Like for some of us, we don't know tomorrow, next week, ever. We just don't know. For some of us, it's gonna be the hardest year we've ever gone through. How will we view that? Will we be like, get me out of here as fast as possible? I hate this. Will the trial be met with instant complaining, groaning, self-pity, woe is me, um, murmuring, again, just completely, I want this gone, God, is fast, back to easy. Or will it be met with a more mature perspective and even the desire in the midst of our tears to see the joy of what God is doing in our lives in a greater way. Can I find the joy of the greater work of God? And this is what we're going to start to unpack now as we go through this passage. It's very, very, very powerful. So this is the call today. And I wonder, I wonder already, are, are, are you and I, are we able to even start to look back week, month, year, decade? Can you see the hand of God now, in the trials that were allowed to come upon your life, can you, can you choose to see 
joy in the hardship because of what Christ was doing as we look upon our past. The power now, can I do that in the present because my faith in Christ is growing. It's, it's, it's again, it's very, very powerful passage. It's really, this theology today, church, it separates the men from the boys, the women from the girls. Like, this is big boy Christianity here. This is not for the faint of heart. It is for the strong in heart. It is so utterly biblical, though, right? So we're to consider it joy within trials. But again, I'm going to be honest, okay? Okay, consider it joy within trials. My, my natural reaction, though, is, but why? Like, how? How is that possible? How can we consider joy within trials? Because how many of us actually wake up each morning? God, would you, I pray, would you give me a trial today, please? That would be odd. I don't pray that way. Do you pray that way? I don't pray that way. And yet we're being called here and asked to look for and find joy, consider it joy, to reckon it joy when trials meet us of various kinds. So then how is this possible? Why? Why can we do this? And then we have three answers to that question as we uh, finish and go through this message. So answer number one to how is it possible that we can find joy within trials. Number one is this on the screen for you, because it tests our faith. We can find joy within trials because it's trials that test our faith. So look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, for, notice that, consider it joy, for, for, here's the answer. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So this is interesting. The word testing in the original can literally mean what proves us. It proves us. Okay? Testing of our faith proves what's actually inside. So let's consider, imagine we, we were spiritual toothpaste. Stay with me, okay? When you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, the pressure comes from the outside. What's inside the tube of toothpaste, we know, comes out. When a trial comes into our lives, it squeezes us from the outside, and here we start to understand and really see what's actually within us. Trials prove our worth. Trials reveal what's actually inside. See, trials go beyond the person that talks the super big game and has all the spiritual language, and claims all this spiritual victory, but then when the trial comes, we find out, oh yeah? Is that really what's inside? Or is it just kind of speech? Here's a really good quote. I love, I love this when I saw this quote. It says this, adversity introduces a man to himself. Isn't that good? I just want you to look at that for a second, and that's, that's worth writing down on some level, or at least remembering. Why does God send adversity into our lives or hardship? Because in these moments, we find out what we're really made of. When life is easy, anyone can do that, right? When life is, everything's going great, da, 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 whatever, we just kind of go along. But when trial hits, then we find out what's actually inside. So, so one of the great blessings of the trial is that it tests our faith. It proves us and shows us what's actually within. When, when, when a metalsmith wants to purify a precious metal, what does he or she do? They light the furnace, man. 
they get the fire going super hot underneath the metal. As the metal starts to heat up in the trial of the furnace, the impurities rise to the top. The metalsmith then scoops out, skims off the impurities, and leaves the metal as more precious than when it began. But the fire is necessary to do so. That is so much the Christian life. The trials come in, the fire gets hot under our lives, it is used to test us and prove us, the impurities of our lives come to the top, the Holy Spirit skims off the top through repentance and confession, we are more Christ-like than we were previously, and our worth now is revealed and our Christ-likeness is enhanced. No fire, no testing, no testing, no refining, no refining, no proving, and then we're in big trouble. You see that when you start to see the joy or the work of God in testing, it starts to see, man, I am better off with the proving of my faith than if I'm not. So therefore, I can start to find joy within the trials that are being used to test my faith and to reveal what's inside. Spurgeon's one of my heroes. He has such a powerful quote on this. On the screen for you, I'll read it for us. I've used this several times. He says, I'm afraid, this is such good wisdom. Can you agree with this? I'm afraid that all the grace that I've got out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. I think that's so, so true. We always want ease. We want ease. We don't want Christ, basically. But the good that I've received from my sorrows, pains, and griefs is altogether incalculable. See what he's saying there? He's like, man, the best things that ever happened to me have been through the hardest times. What do I not owe to the crucible and the furnace, the bellows that have blown up the coals and the hand which has thrust me into the heat? I bear my witness that the worst days I've ever had have turned out to be my best days. I think that's so biblical, like today. I can bear my personal testimony that the best piece of furniture I've ever had in the house was a cross. Not a material cross, I mean the cross of affliction and trouble. And then look at this last sentence. In shunning a trial, we are seeking to avoid a blessing. Look at that last line. That's massive. Let's apply that last line to our lives today. Can you apply that when you are seeking and I am seeking to avoid a trial in the proper theology and the sequence of God's word when we're trying to get rid of a trial, we're also at the same time trying to shun the very blessing of God. Wow. Fascinating. The trials that are given at the end result to results in our greatest blessing. This is when we start to see the joy in trials. Here's the second answer to that question. Number two, because testing produces steadfastness, okay? So look at verse three again, okay? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, okay? So this is key. Count it all joy when trials, because the testing of your faith produces now steadfast. Steadfastness is a very, very, very important theological word in the New Testament. It's a tremendous virtue. Um, interestingly, New American Standard translates that endurance, NIV perseverance, New King James patience, and then ESV, my translation, is steadfastness. So what's the answer? The answer is all of the above. This is what the testing of our faith produces. It's this virtue of of character, patience, perseverance, endurance, and steadfast. Remember, church, listen, listen. This is what testing produces. 
So again, let's be smart Bible students. Let's be smart uh, 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 disciples of Jesus Christ, okay? So, so if we do theological math again, a life without trial and blessing then is a life without the fruit of steadfastness that makes us more like Jesus Christ. No trial, no testing, no testing, no steadfastness, then no true joy and perseverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. No trial means no testing. No testing means no steadfastness. No steadfastness, listen, no chance. No chance. If we don't have steadfastness in our lives, we don't make it. There's never been a man or woman in the history of the church that's made it to the end to hear well done without steadfastness, ever. There's never been a person who has not heard that, again, upon their lives on some level at some time. Steadfastness is absolutely necessary to make it to reach glory. And now steadfastness only comes through testing. And testing comes through trial. So you can even back it up now and say this, hey, no trial in your life, no chance. We don't stand a chance without the God sovereignly given trials of various kinds that enter into our lives. Again, steadfastness, it's, it's um, biblically speaking, it's subjecting oneself to something you'd rather rebel against. Our instinct, like, like when, a, when, a, when a weight comes upon us, like, get the weight off me, get the weight off me. Steadfastness is I bear under that weight, even though the pressure and the weight and, and just the burden, but I'm trusting God in that. See, the immature feel the weight and they're like, off, off, leave me as fast as possible, back to easy. The mature in Christ say, I wouldn't ask for this, Lord, but I trust you. I bear under, I am steadfast under the weight and I choose to trust you in the process as opposed to trying to control every aspect of my life. This is the steadfastness that James speaks of. It's, it's, I don't enjoy this, but I'm trusting God in it. The weight feels heavy, but Christ is with me. And I choose to resolve in this moment as opposed to trying to escape from this moment. I believe that the weight that God has allowed to be upon me at this time in this hardship is producing a character and a growth I cannot see, but I trust is happening. The immature say, I don't care about that. I just want an easier life. Again, this, is, this, this theology, I've said it already. I want to say it again. This is separating the, the men from the boys and the women from the girls. This is, this is one of the big difference makers of those who bear fruit long-term for Christ and those who fizzle out into lukewarm and a lukewarm aspect where Jesus Christ, I want to throw up when I see a lukewarm living, people who are not willing to trust him, but they seek to trust themselves. Steadfastness and perseverance, it's, it's, it's one of the more dominant themes in the entire New Testament. Isn't that interesting? It really is. And you can look that up too. Why is that the case? Because God knew how much we would need it. He knew how much we would need to persevere. And even passages like this today, to trust him in the process that life is not meant to be this easy street here. Otherwise, what would be the point of heaven if we felt that heaven was here and now in so many ways and everything went exactly as we wanted to? It's about growing in Christ and trusting him and having faith, having faith. Um, on this note, uh, one of my favorite hymns of all time, we're gonna put up on the screen for you here by William Cooper. Um, he was a contemporary, Russia, really good friend of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. 
William Cooper, um, he struggled massively with depression throughout his life. He was often suicidal. Um, it's so interesting. A, a man who struggled so deeply wrote some of the most profound words I have written or I have read in terms of what we're talking about today. I think you can only go through such to be able to produce such. So this is one verse. My favorite version of this hymn is by Jeremy Riddle. If you want to look it up afterwards, whatever. I've listened to it so many times to carry me through some of my darkest days. Listen to this one verse that Cooper was led to write by the Spirit in the midst of his own devastation and darkness. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. See, we do that, right? We, we judge the Lord. We judge the will of God. We judge what's around us. We're so feeble. We don't know what's going on. We can barely see a fraction of the outcome of what's happening, but we start to play God. He's like, don't do that. Behind a frowning providence. Such a good line. Behind a frowning providence, right? You're in the hospital room. You're in the midst of a tremendous tragedy. You're in the midst of something you cannot see. And it seems like God is frowning. But behind the frowning providence, in the end, you will see one day, he's hiding a smiling face. See, his purposes will will we'll ripen fast. Our, our life seems so long at sometimes, but really, James says it's a mist, it's a vapor. We are, we are here and gone, just like that. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. Again, trusting him. I love this here too. The bud may have a bitter taste. It does. The bud does have a bitter taste. But in the end, in the trust and faith and the glory of God and the will of God and the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, sweet will be in the end, church, in the end, brothers and sisters, in the end, loved ones, in the end, all will be made right and all will be made new and all will be perfect in the eternal state of the Lord. And this is a man of faith crying out in the midst of his own darkness saying, Lord, I will not judge you because there's only one you. And in this moment right now, in the midst of my own tears, I trust you. God, would you produce steadfastness within me. Again, let us not shun the very thing that God intends to bless. Trials are used to test us, to prove us, to refine us, to strengthen us, to produce steadfastness in us. So when we believe in the value of steadfastness and we see that trials and testing produce this steadfastness, that's when we're able to count it joy when such things are coming upon us. So Pastor Ross mentioned that back at Hope Oakville, we're coming up on 20 years. We're, we're here, 20 years this month of when our core group started. And um, man, you're in ministry in the same place for 20 years. You see a lot of things. All right, and I, I wanna be transparent with you, man. I just, I just really enjoy being transparent. I'm just trying to, like, man, so 20 years of ministry in one setting, the victories, the celebrations, the blessings, the life change. I never wanted to go into ministry, you know that? My wife never wanted to marry a pastor, all right? I promise you that, okay? But here we are all these years later, and we've seen so much. The church is being planted. It's been awesome. But within that, the pain, the heartache, the suffering, the opposition, the sleepless nights, the spiritual attack, the devastation of sin all around us, As I think about 20 years and in this sense, and I just, I think about some of the significant trials the Lord has allowed us to go through. And by the way, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. But it's just how it goes. 
I think five, seven years ago, going through one of the hardest times in ministry, I personally was on the verge. I was, I was done. I was done. It was too much. I could not bear it. I was so confused. I was lost. My wife was right with me, just like whatever. We had a forced sabbatical that saved our ministry. Nothing in me wanted to go through that. Nothing in me would have ever chosen it. Nothing in me was expecting it. It was awful. Multiple levels. But what I can say now is I look back and as I consider what the things has done, and I can be honest with you here, one of the greatest purposes that God allowed in that trial and testing is to produce steadfastness in us, but also in detail, it was to, in the end, I think in some part, it was to protect me from me. So many guys aren't making it. So many leaders crashing out, burning out. I've always said one of the greatest gifts God has given to me personally is consistent doses of humiliation. Because it's in the humiliation that you're reminded of who's in charge, who this is about, and your massive dependence upon him, and you got nothing. Without trials, I'm not here today. That's what I'm trying to say. There's no chance I'm standing here without God allowing trials of testing to produce steadfastness and to ultimately prepare me and to prepare you for the glory that is to come. And that leads us to our last, our last point here. Steadfastness moves us towards maturity. So look, at, look at verse four now. Verse four, and let, so see the sequence. I love biblical sequence. I love the sequence. Trials, testing, steadfastness, now maturity. So let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James like, hey, hey, church, don't nip steadfastness in the bud, right? Again, the immature believers, right? There comes a trial and they're trying to get out of it. He's like, no, don't do that. Let it grow to maturity. Don't nip the growth in the bud, right? In our instant gratification world, right? What do we want? We want to escape all. When we worship self-comfort, you and I, we are surrounded by a worship of self. We are so spoiled with all our comforts and we are led into a very dangerous theology that again, comfort is the number one goal. James is like, be careful, be careful, be careful. Because the trials that bring discomfort are used to produce steadfastness and ultimately maturity to prepare you for glory. And if you and I just want comfort, we're gonna miss out on the very process that allows us to make it, be prepared in maturity and make us ready for glory. Again, man, it's deep stuff here. This is such a separating from mature and immature. Right? It's like, um, hang in there. Let it have its full effect that you'll be lacking in nothing, pointing to glory. Right? This is God's design for our increased maturity. Again, have full effect. And we can stand before Jesus Christ one day and hear, well done. So maturity in a huge part in this text is how we view our trials. And when we view them according to God's word, this is what allows us to start to see joy. So let's put that sequence up on the screen here um, as we end here. Okay, watch this. I love when I see this in scripture. This is kind of the outline today. Okay, so watch. Trials, this is just verses three through four. Trials lead to testing. 
Testing leads to steadfastness. Steadfastness leads to maturity, and maturity's ultimate results prepare us for glory in Jesus Christ. You're like, yeah, I want the glory. Well, not without maturity. I want maturity, not without steadfastness. I want steadfastness, not without testing. And testing doesn't happen without trials. So therefore, right, if I really want that, then I really want this. And this is when, church, when you start to see this process under God's sovereignty, this is when you start to have this. Because if you don't have this, you'll never have that. This is what allows me to count it. It's not always feeling it. To count it as joy because I recognize what God is doing in my life. Are you and I able to do that right now? Like, isn't this strong biblical counseling, right? It is so important. And, and church, what I love to do and what I've several times, my, can you right now, based on this rock solid theology, can you flip the script? Say, what do you mean? When I'm listening to self and Satan, and when I have a situation of hardship, which has happened many, many times in my life, and all I see is myself staring at my, because when, when all I see is this, I'm navel-gazing. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. My heart less so hard, da, da, da. I look here, I'm so discouraged. I'm tempted with despair, and I want to give up. And Satan's like, yeah, give up, give up. You suck, you stink, give up, give up. Give up. You're no good, you're trials, da, da, da. And just like, in that moment, and all I see is this, then I'm like, I'm done. But then when I flip the script from here back out now and see the whole process that actually this is used not to help me to give up. This is being used for me to persevere to the end, to find the glory of Christ presented me in the last day. The flip, this script is now flipped in an instant and now I don't hear the, the voice of Satan condemning me. Now I see the will of God refining me. And what literally has happened in moments in my life, in one moment I've been in despair, the right theology enters in through a William Cooper hymn, let's say, or James 1, 2 to 4, and in that moment the Holy Spirit's like, wait, you see what I'm doing? And everything flips. In a moment, I go from despair to delight. I go from gloom to joy. I go from woe is me to thankful to believe that God is actually working in my life and heart for his greater good and preparing me for glory. That is possible. That is what the Lord wants to do. So, I end today. Where can you flip the script right now in your life? And I'm telling you, man, take this with you. Like, this is such important theology. You apply this for the rest of your life in different situations. You will be powerfully used by Christ. Satan is terrified of this. He's terrified of believers that will take the hardest things and let them be turned into the greatest good. He's terrified of that. And that's why we preach it. Because this is spiritual warfare for Jesus Christ right now. God help us, amen? God help us. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for you. I love your attention today. It's such encouragement. Father, um, thank you for your word today. And just as I preach it, I am so convinced of it. I'm so convinced. This is massively important, beautiful wisdom of God right here in your word. And so um, I pray that scripts will be flipped today, even now. Pray they already have been. I pray there be multiple, multiple situations of what we have despised in the past. We can now even delight in the present. 
We can count it. It's not about feeling, church, right? Loved ones, it's not about feeling something. That might come. But right now, it's to look at it and to say, what is God actually doing? He is growing me. He is preparing me. He is strengthening me. He is maturing me. He is loving me. He is producing joy in me. That, that is when I find his power to live. And that is when Satan flees.